Rules of engagement don't describe the etiquette of asking someone to marry you. Instead, they are an important tool in assuring that war is fought in a way that supports the political objectives of the war and the law of armed conflict. These rules are the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 77 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and the Naval War College. I intend these podcasts as a kind of war college for everyone, not as in-depth as our National Defense Universities, but instead focused on what I think every citizen should understand about war, peace, and everything in between. Now, if you think I'm meeting this intent, please hit like and subscribe and follow, and maybe leave a comment. These podcasts are not monetized or subsidized in any way, except maybe through the patience of my wife and the time I spend putting them together. It's been a while since the last episode. I was away from home teaching young, well, they all seem young to me, U.S. Air Force airmen on how to fly, and upon coming home it took me another while to get back into my routine. In previous episodes, I spoke about the laws of warfare, the natural laws and the regulated laws, and their relationship to the notion of just war. Closely tied to this is the importance of political control and direction of war, the concept that war is a continuation of national policy with the addition of other means. These two elements, operating in accordance with the military regulations which uphold the laws and customs of war, and operating under the direction of legitimate authority, are necessary to achieve the only acceptable purpose of war, that being a more just and sustainable peace. A key tool used by the United States, NATO, and many governments to assure that the use of military force is consistent with the political ends of the armed conflict and the laws and customs of war are Rules of Engagement, or ROE. This ROE is a directive published by a competent military authority and for the USA approved at national command authority level, which define when military forces may initiate combat and when they must terminate combat. This includes who may be attacked, what may or may not be attacked, and in some cases, the limitations on the type of weapons that may be used. Here is an example of one rule that might be part of an armed forces ROE. That would read, use of force up to and including the use of deadly force to prevent the unauthorized boarding of U.S. and coalition flagged vessels in or transiting the Black Sea is permitted. Although restrictions on the application of military power are as old as just war theory, the concept of specific rules of engagement are a late 20th century development arising from the Korean War in an effort to keep that war limited. One example of a rule to meet that policy objective was that Chinese Communist forces in Korea could be attacked anywhere in the Korean Peninsula or its waters. They could not be attacked in the People's Republic of China. After the Korean War, similar rules were developed to guide the actions of aircraft and naval vessels when coming in close contact with Russian or Communist Chinese aircraft and naval vessels. These were officially called peacetime rules of engagement. By the time of the war in Vietnam, the idea of ROE matured. Now, these rules were then thought necessary in that conflict as a means to avoid charges of violating the law of war and to placate growing unpopularity of the war at home. Unfortunately, this is where rules of engagement got a very bad reputation. 
Not only were the Vietnam-era ROE unsuccessful to achieve the results I just mentioned, soldiers, airmen, and congressmen said that they were overly restrictive. These restrictions were claimed to result in the unnecessary deaths of our own military while giving sanctuary to the enemy. This bad reputation resurfaced in 1983 when it was claimed that overly restrictive or contradicting ROE enabled the bombing of the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut. Since then, U.S. standing rules of engagement were revised, and so far, anyway, they seem to be working. But how do ROE work, and why are they important? For several years, I taught at an international rules of engagement workshop at the International Institute of Humanitarian Law in San Ramo, Italy, and there's no way that I can give a full explanation of ROE in 15 minutes. That said, I think that understanding ROE is important in understanding how the U.S. goes to war, so I'll focus on key elements that I think you need to know. First, ROE are developed to guide the use of force by our armed forces in a way that promotes the U.S. policy objectives in war and operations short of war. To accomplish this, ROE will be tailored to the specific objectives of a military operation. An example of this could be in declaring who is considered hostile and can be attacked at any time, or not declaring a party as hostile unless they demonstrate hostile intent or a hostile act. An example rule could be, attack of declared hostile forces in East Elbonia is permitted. An amplification would then follow, saying, declared hostile forces include members of the East Elbonian Armed Forces, their facilities and equipment, and civilians taking a direct part in hostilities against U.S. and coalition forces, or who are attacking civilians. Now, it could be that other national forces may be nearby, and these may be indirectly assisting the hostile forces, but are not themselves directly attacking U.S. or coalition forces. If the policy is to avoid escalation into open-armed conflict with that country, there might also be rules that say, maneuver closer than three kilometers from units identified as Ruritarian Armed Forces is prohibited, and aiming weapons in the direction of Ruritarian Armed Forces is prohibited. Again, these are just theoretical examples of rules that could exist. Second, ROE cannot obstruct the right of self-defense. Since 1983, every ROE I have seen contains this language. Nothing in these ROE negates the individual right of self-defense and commanders always retain the inherent right and obligation to exercise unit self-defense in response to a hostile act or demonstrated hostile intent. Third, ROE exists to assure compliance with the law of war and particularly that of military proportionality. Now, this proportionality means that the death and destruction caused by a military operation cannot be excessive in relation to the military advantage gained from that operation. This includes the principle of distinction, which orients the use of force on military targets and avoids unnecessary death and destruction of non-combatant civilians. Proportionality has also been viewed as a legal restatement of the military concept of economy of force. An example of a rule to control unnecessary risk of civilian casualties might read, Use of unobserved indirect fire is prohibited. On the other hand, if civilians have been evacuated from an area and unobserved fire is not considered wasteful but may even be important to disrupting enemy movement, the rule might say, 
the use of unobserved indirect fire is permitted in the following situations, A, B, C, etc., or when approved by then specify a relevant commander, usually a general officer. Now again, this is also one possible rule. Other rules might include prohibitions on targeting towns except in self-defense, restricting fires within a special specified distance from properly marked medical facilities, churches, and so on. Depending on national policy, rules of engagement may be restrictive or permissive in nature. Restrictive ROE means that any use of force not specifically permitted in the ROE are prohibited. Permissive ROE allow commanders to use any means or methods of force that are not prohibited by the laws and customs of war or the ROE itself. U.S. standing rules of engagement are permissive in nature. Other nations, including some NATO allies and many coalition partners, use restrictive ROE, something that must be considered in planning for coalition operations. For example, when I was in Iraq, the Italian Carabinieri had very restrictive ROE, more like that used by police than typical of armed forces in combat. As a result, in one engagement that I saw unfold, the enemy achieved a tactical advantage which ended up with coalition forces in a hard-pressed defensive situation. This required U.S. forces to conduct counterattacks that would not have otherwise been necessary. Now, I'm not saying that the Italian ROE were inappropriate, but if we had known ahead of time about the restrictive nature of their ROE, we might have been able to involve U.S. or other coalition forces that had more permissive ROE to engage the hostile forces earlier in the battle. So next we want to know how these rules are developed. They begin with policy statements by the National Command Authority. These statements will describe what we want to achieve by armed conflict and what we want to avoid doing. For example, in the first Gulf War, we wanted to destroy the Republican Guard, yet leave Iraq with enough military strength to deter Iran from renewing its war with Iraq. The ROE were tailored to achieve this intent. But who does this tailoring? This is the responsibility of military commanders at each level working from top down. This must be drafted using an operational perspective informed by law of war experts. The theater commander's staff, usually through the deputy chief of staff for operations and assisted by the judge advocate, will propose ROE that will implement the policy directives. These then must be approved by the commander and forwarded to the national command authority for final approval. Subordinate commanders may also develop ROE, which may be more restrictive than higher level ROE based upon specific mission requirements. These modified ROE must be approved by the higher commander, or for the United States, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense. This is to assure that these subordinate ROE do not contradict higher ROE and do not create unnecessary risk. It's important that the language used in ROEs are clear, consistent, and use commonly understood terms. After all, the ROE developed by a staff in the Pentagon needs to be understood by a corporal in a hostile environment thousands of miles away. For U.S. forces, this begins with the standing ROE. Unclassified portions of the standing ROE are available online. There are also two handbooks available for drafting the specific elements of the ROE with instructions of how to put them together. These are the 2009 San Remo Handbook on Rules of Engagement, published by the International Institute of Humanitarian Law, and the very similar 2022 Newport Rules of Engagement Handbook, published by the Naval War College. 
The San Ramo Handbook was the textbook for the course on rules of engagement during the time I lectured on that subject at the IIHL, and in full disclosure, I was a contributor to and am cited as a reviewer for the Naval War College Handbook. Also, each of the example rules that I cited earlier in this podcast came from the Naval War College Handbook. Now, you can find links to these handbooks in the podcast notes. These sources are used to stitch together specific clauses to meet the specific policy and operational requirements. After final approval, these ROE will be included as an annex to the operations plan or order. However, this annex can be both complex and classified. Therefore, the essential elements must be summarized into an unclassified note that all soldiers can use as a guide for their actions. In Operation Desert Storm, this bottom line summary was 1. Fight only combatants. 2. Attack only military targets. 3. Spare civilian persons and objects. 4. Restrict destruction to what your mission requires. It's important to understand that ROE are dynamic. They will change during the course of a conflict as policy changes through experience or when the specific requirements of a military operation change. Theater and subordinate ROE may change rapidly during the initial stages of an operation. Hopefully, these changes will only affect higher level planning and execution, and not the lowest tactical levels, that is, where the soldiers actually have to implement them. Now, what I've described is US-centric. But as I said earlier, many other nations use ROE and many use the San Ramo Handbook in doing so. Given current developments, it's useful to know that Israel also has very specific rules of engagement and from what I understand, is pretty strict in their application. A well-constructed ROE will aid mission accomplishment, manage risk of unintended consequences such as escalation of the conflict and violations of the law of war, and as an economy of force by minimizing unproductive military action. A poorly constructed, complex, or difficult to understand ROE, on the other hand, may result in the death of persons who pose no threat or may surrender a tactical advantage leading to unnecessary loss of friendly lives. But all of this really only applies to armed conflict or open warfare where the law of war applies. What about operations short of war? where use of force may still be necessary. For those cases, there's a different set of rules based on human rights law. These are called rules for the use of force. However, I've gone on long enough for now, and rules for the use of force will have to wait for a future episode. Again, if you think these episodes are worthwhile, that you learned something from them, please subscribe or follow, hit like, and join me again on the ancient art of modern warfare.